0: Aloha, this is Katherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. It's Aloha Friday, January 12th. There's been a lot of talk about local agriculture, but we want to hear from those out in the field doing the work. Today we're revisiting our favorite conversations from the past year with those who are getting down and dirty to find innovative solutions for food sustainability. First we learn about an eco forest Grant that could be a game changer for farmers. Then we turn the question upside down, or at least on its side. We talk growing food vertically, not horizontally, with freight farming. And ulu move over. Macnut flour is making inroads. A Hawaii island small business scales a big hurdle. Plus, we hear from an entrepreneur who's connecting home chefs with local protein in a different way. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we have a Food Sustainability show. Hawaii currently imports about 90% of its food, and in recent years we've looked for ways to increase our self-sustainability. These are some recent interviews with folks contributing to that effort. We start with a program giving farmers a chance at a gift of a federal grant aimed at building food security in agroforestry. The Hawaii Ulu Cooperative and the Nature Conservancy are shepherding the program. We talked to Program Director Chris Ka'iokapu, but we start off with Donna Shapiro, General Manager of the Cooperative, about how this could be a game changer for fledging and commercial farmers as we build more climate-smart communities.
1: You know, the impact that we're hoping for and envisioning is unlocking capital for farmers to expand not just Ulu production, but agroforestry production, Broadly, So ulu is a core agroforestry crop in traditional Hawaiian agroforestry systems, but ulu doesn't grow great in all microclimates of Hawaii. For instance, in higher elevations, it's it's a lot less productive. So this particular project is really focused on agroforestry as a climate-smart form of agriculture. It's not limited exclusively to ulu agroforestry. As the regional lead, Hawaii Ulu Co-op obviously loves ulu, and we definitely think that ulu is a priority crop for the state because of food security. But the program as a whole is not going to only be limited to lower elevation farms that can grow ulu. So just wanted to make that really clear. Higher elevation farms or farms looking to practice agroforestry with other crops as their primary commodities are definitely welcome to apply.
0: When we last talked, you were trying to get kind of a critical mass, right? So we could start developing, you know, flour, right, for products. Mm -hmm. You needed the volume. And what we're hearing, right, from all these businesses, like Zippy's wants to, you know, provide more ulu, but they just don't have enough product. We hear a lot of this. And so I was excited for the breadfruit farmers that this could be a big boost in our coverage across the state.
1: Yeah, I think that it will be. You know, funding to start or expand Ulu production in agroforestry systems has been pretty limited, especially because tree cropping systems take a long time to generate revenues. Ulu, as an example, takes at least five years until you can really expect commercial volumes coming off of your trees. And in some cases, it's even longer. So, how is a farmer going to? fund the establishment of their farm with five to 10 years until their farm is going to break even. And this source of funding is a grant. It's not a reimbursement grant. It's an incentive program. So it's actually upfront capital and you don't have to pay it back. It's going to be a really effective, a really impactful form of funding that hasn't been available before.
0: And Chris, jump in here, you know, because you're going to be spearheading this, right? I mean, you're there on Kauai, but we're talking all the islands.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. Every... Farms on every island are eligible, landowners on every island. And, and yeah, like Donna said, I mean, it's an exciting opportunity to have an incentive program structure instead of reimbursement because farming costs are so high, especially in Hawaii, that it's you know those reimbursement programs just really aren't as applicable or um, they don't make sense for the average farmer in Hawaii. So having the ability to receive funds up front for what you're going to do, especially when it involves trees, is, is huge.
0: So, what other types of trees are we talking about besides ulu? I mean, we're talking mango, oranges.
2: Pretty much any fruit tree or timber species can just be an ecosystem support crop, like a mulching tree, willy willy, clear acidia, other nitrogen fixers, and shrubs as well, understory or mid canopy crops. All of those apply to agroforestry. The only ones that would be disqualified would be ones that are deemed invasives. So we're in the process of coming up with a blacklist of crops that are not allowed because of their invasiveness or potential to spread disease, that sort of thing.
0: I am excited because I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, we could really help the avocado farmers. What was the other one? Sapote, I think that's another crop, I think, that was uh, getting some interest there, I think, on the Big Island. It's really a pretty amazing opportunity for farmers to get in on this. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's a big opportunity for our Aina, I think, too, because... Agroforestry, that's one of the reasons that I'm such a big proponent of it and why I wanted to, I guess, make a career out of it is because it it has the potential to be a solution for all of our lands that have been degraded from former sugarcane plantation operations. So a lot of our, you know, former sugarcane lands are optimal. They're like the Kula lands and they're optimal for agroforestry. It's what probably was there in a large majority of these areas that were, you know, bulldozed, they're cleared for sugarcane. And so when you think about the most responsible thing to do from an environmental perspective, you know, to grow or produce food in these areas. And so for me, that's one of the big, more important factors is to consider our, our INAD first and what we need to do to be sustainable here. So agroforestry, I think, is a huge solution. And agroforestry, in simplest terms, it's, you know, for people who are unfamiliar with this this new word, it's like diverse orchards, you know, it's fruit trees and mid-canopy and ground cover crops all intermixed. Well, talk
0: about the types of uh, shrub crops that would be available or eligible for this grant.
2: I mean, the most common or obvious example would be like mamaki, which is a native uh, plant that's used for tea and medicinal purposes and is really becoming popular as a product. There's also like ava, which is a popular native crop. And other small trees, small shrubs, understory, you know, like hollow, or um, Olao, some other medicinal herbs, but pretty much anything that can grow between rows of trees. So like pala'ai is really popular, squash. You can even do vegetables, traditional row crops.
0: And so are we talking everything from like cacao to coffee as well? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Donna, I know when uh, we were chatting about Wulu, I know that uh, the community, I think of like Haula and Laie over here on Oahu, they were looking at trying to make their communities more resilient. They were urging the community members, families to plant ulu in your backyard, because if the you know roads are closed, you at least still have ulu in your home on your property to harvest. How are we looking at this, you know, I guess methodically when you figure out food security and in what are those areas that are food deserts?
1: Well, I guess an important distinction here is subsistence versus commercial production. This particular program, it's called the Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities. And that word commodity is really important. This program is about commercial production. So it's actually not providing funding for subsistence operations or you know, projects that are purely for community food security in backyards or in community gardens or parks. This is really targeting farmers, part-time commercial or full-time commercial farmers, or beginning farmers or aspiring farmers that would like to be more commercial. So that's a really important point. If you're just a backyard grower wanting to grow more of your own local food, that's fantastic, but this is not the right program for you.
0: Uh, There are other funding pots to tap from as well, I think, for those backyard gardeners and farmers.
1: You know, the one that's coming to mind right now is the Hawaii Department of Ag micro-grant program. That's up to $5,000, and it's exactly the flip of this program. It's specifically for household food security and community food security. So for folks that are looking to do more subsistence food security projects, that would be a great one to look at. And I believe nonprofit community organizations can get $10,000 from that program.
0: Okay, so what do then our commercial growers need to know? How do they apply? There will be future
1: enrollment periods. This is a five-year grant, and there's three enrollment periods per year. So we're really encouraging people not to apply until they feel that they're ready and until they have a plan that is going to be really solid, because that way they'll have a more competitive application. They can find out, people can find more information and in the application form on our website, ulu.coop. EAP, EAP stands for Expanding Agroforestry Projects, E-A-P. That's the acronym for this program. And if they have any questions, they can contact Chris. His email is agroforestry at eatbreadfruit.com. Chris can also help, you know, help give feedback on proposal ideas. And if you do apply and you're not selected in this very first enrollment period, We really encourage you to apply again, and we will provide feedback to help you strengthen your application. I also wanted to make sure that the types of agroforestry practices covered under this program are really clear to potential applicants. So agroforestry is a relatively new term for an ancient practice, a practice that's been implemented all over the world, including in Hawaii for millennia. And as Chris mentioned, there's so many awesome sustainability benefits and ecosystem services that agroforestry provides beyond producing abundant amounts of food or timber or other crops. But under the USDA's current definition of agroforestry, there are five recognized practices, and only three of those practices are eligible under this particular program. The three practices that are eligible are alley cropping, Silvo pasture and windbreaks. And I could provide a quick overview of what each practice entails. Would that be helpful?
0: Yes, because I think maybe our listeners won't understand that. What does alley cropping mean?
1: So alley cropping is the idea of planting your trees in rows like you might in a conventional orchard setting, but then having diversification in the alleys. So the alleys are those spaces in between traditional rows of trees. The alley crop can be another tree, It can be a shrub, like Chris described, mamaki or ava, which is lower than ulu. It can be coffee or cacao, which love to grow in the shade of canopy trees. Or it can be a ground crop like pumpkin or kalo or sweet potato. So that's an alley cropping system. It's basically the combination of trees in rows with other trees or shrubs or ground crops in the alleys.
0: What about silvopasture?
1: So silvopasture is the combination of trees with animals, with livestock, a popular firm of silvopasture here in Hawaii is with cattle. So one of our member farms on Maui, Hana Ranch, actually practices silvopasture already with ulu and cattle on their land. They have very wide-spaced ulu trees of 10 to 15 trees per acre, and their cattle graze throughout the pasture. And they eat the leaves of the tree, they eat the fruit that falls, they rest in the shade of the trees, and it's a really great combination. It seems to increase ulu production, and it supports the, the cow's health. So that silvo pasture, it can also be practiced with sheep, with chickens, even. So it's pretty diverse what you can do with silvo pasture. And then the last one, windbreaks, is really what it sounds like. It's utilizing trees as a barrier to protect your crop or livestock from wind, from wind damage. So it would be like a row of trees, you know, around a collie field, or you know, a perimeter of trees all around a paddock that's home to sheep, for example.
0: And then, Chris, how do we roll this out statewide, right? Because, you know, we often hear, well, we don't really have a baseline on, you know, all the the products and the crops that we're growing. We don't have good numbers to work from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you figure out, you know, what our greatest need is?
2: Well, we are prioritizing trying to find projects on each island. We currently have most of the projects or most of the interest is coming from Hawaii Island. We do have some on Oahu, some on Kauai and a few on Maui, but none yet from Lanai or Molokai. So that is it is a priority, at least of mine, is to make sure we have projects going on each island. And then explicitly in, in the nationwide program goals is to set up a network of demonstration sites and research partners. So looking for projects that are willing to become demonstration sites for everyone to learn from, to come and visit, to, to host visits occasionally for groups to learn and to you know help. I guess, catalyze this agroforestry industry by knowledge sharing.
0: That was Chris Ka'iokapu and Donna Shapiro with the Ulu Cooperative talking about a grant program for commercial farmers. The deadline to apply was December 31st of 2023, but there will be other enrollment periods coming up this spring. You can find more info on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. We'll be back with more of our Food Sustainability show right after a break.
3: Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dowling Family Charitable Fund, Dowling Company, for more than three decades working to develop housing projects for the Maui community and committed to building in balance, and HPR supporters since 2001. This Saturday, HPR presents Gaylord Duval's live at their Atherton studio. Join us for an evening of world and regional premieres of new works, and Waahilo Ridge featured field recordings and electronics with double bass. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org, sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University.
0: our Food Sustainability Hanahosho. As we mentioned earlier, 90% of Hawaii's food is imported. But Oahu resident Sasha Leitner hopes her new business, Hawaii Greens Freight Farms, can help change that. Freight farming is an agricultural method that turns a shipping container into a mobile hydroponic farm. She first learned about the method during the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey back in 2017. Uh, Leitner made a trip to our studio along with Hanaha'oli student Stella Pakala this past October to talk to the Conversations Russell Subiono about the benefits of freight farming.
4: Let's try to visualize or explain what it looks like. I think everybody knows what a shipping container looks Mm -hmm. like. When you walk into it, Mm -hmm. I think the unique design is this vertical grow. Yes. Right? So I imagine that there are systems in place that allow for the ag to grow vertically using the drip system, right? Yes. And And you said that the each container is equal to a, about two and a half acres?
5: Yeah. At full capacity, there's about 8,500 plants growing, sometimes more depending on whether you're intercropping or not and how large of the crops that you're growing are. But it's about 8,000 plants when okay. it's fully going, which is a substantial amount if you think about it. When you first walk into the container, on the left-hand side, they have the nursery station, which is a sprouting station. And the company successfully sprouted everything from leafy greens to herbs to edible flowers, beets, kohlrabi, all different kinds of root vegetables. But they've also been able to sprout trees in the nursery station. Now, you can't put it into the hydroponic drip system to develop into full capacity, but you can sprout in that way through the nursery system, which here we have a need for more trees always. It can only benefit us to have nursery projects Mm -hmm. that are looking at weather resilient installations.
4: And so I imagine that leafy vegetables are probably the most conducive to this form of agriculture, lettuce, herbs, things like that. Yes. What about larger crops, bell peppers, cucumbers, bananas, watermelons?
5: So bananas are pretty much a tree. Uh So (laughs) granted, you can sprout that Mm -hmm. way, but to actually grow to capacity, it's not a realistic grow. They've successfully grown tomatoes in them and I think small scale peppers. They've done beets and turnips. Kohlrabi, I know, was a really good one for them as well. But things that vine, it isn't the best space to okay. do that in.
4: And so even though it might not be able to produce some of the, the larger or heavier crops, mm-hmm. it could still take the crops that are grown in there off the table in, in the sense of taking it out of the ground and allowing for other crops to be put into the ground.
5: If you think about it, your leafy greens and your herbs usually require the largest amount of pesticides. Mm-hmm just because of rat lungworm and all of the white fly issues that we have so taking those high pesticide ridden vegetables out of the ground and putting them into containers we can actually look at our agriculture space and focus on kalo and other hardier more large scale agriculture needs for that space that actually require less pesticides.
4: I read some other benefits as well. You can produce the produce close to the customer, yep. year-round growing, yep. water and space optimization. So there are much more benefits in terms of infrastructure and you know farm to table. I mean, they literally, right? You could Hyper just- yeah local. Yeah, like, right? Literally,
5: you can have it within the building. A chef can go harvest and put it on the table in minutes, you know, if you have it located within the vicinity of where you're serving it. And if we're minimizing how far our food is traveling, we're also zeroing our carbon footprint for food production and agriculture is one of the largest carbon producers for our state. And if you're minimizing it by plugging these into a solar grid you're actually benefiting the state because your your greens aren't traveling. Most people who buy greens from Costco, you know, you get those giant boxes. Right. You open them up and you have, what, days to eat it because it's taken so long for them to arrive here. These container farms, if you harvest them with the root, you're bagging them, you're transporting them to where they're going to be eaten. The freight farm company has said that they can last two to three weeks properly refrigerated with their root. But this would actually enable us to place them in areas that could potentially be isolated. So a, contain- a 40-foot container to be dropped in where we can see road loss is yeah. actually something that can benefit communities on the back end of a big weather incident as soon as you plug them in from seed to sprout to harvest is about six to eight weeks because you have 24-hour grow periods you're regulating how much light they're getting Mm -hmm. you're regulating the nutrients and the food and the thing about these smart systems is is that they're tracking everything and so teaching on them is actually even cooler because you're tracking the carbon that the plants are consuming, you're tracking the nutrients that they're using, the light and how fast they're growing. And you can swing it for multiple different age groups Mm -hmm. to actually teach classes of all different varieties on these systems.
4: Before our, our interview, we were talking about the tech component to this, and you mentioned some of the new technology. I imagine that the tech component could also be a hook for our younger generation to yes. be interested yes. in agriculture. And you brought Stella with you today, <laughs> who goes to Hanaoli School, and uh, she's been helping you in this process, right? Yes. Stella, what is interesting about these freight farms to you as a young person?
6: It's interesting to me because I love like technology and because I've kind of been born into that generation. So I think it's so cool that when you walk in, you don't kind of have to guess what you have to do. You like sign into the computer and it tells you everything you have to do for the day and you can just do it like that. I think it's really cool how it tracks each plant and how they grow, because it can grow so many different plants. And I think it's super cool that it can run on like just solar power and it doesn't, you don't have to have like a carbon footprint.
4: Sasha, you know, with with any new technology, it always comes with challenges as well. Many benefits, but it also comes with challenges. What do you anticipate being the challenges that you have to overcome to be able to do freight farming here in Hawaii?
5: I'm sure a lot of it is going to be the pushback about the hydroponic systems. But I think that Hawaii finally turned the corner of accepting hydroponics as being a realistic solution for our agriculture community. Ideally, I'd love to see these in the schools because they'd be excellent grow spaces, food resources, and education platforms for our public school systems and private schools, but ideally for the public schools because it would only add to the food resources for our kids.
4: And you've been on this journey for quite some time now, right? (laughs) How long have you been working on this? (laughs) Like
5: I said, since Hurricane Harvey, yeah. I kind of got into it, and I've been advocating pretty hard. I've I've approached many of our community organizations, from Lions Clubs to Rotary Clubs to Climate Action Committee to Malama Manoa. I've I've spoken to many many different organizations advocating for this as a solution for weather resilient agriculture. I've been lucky enough to have a lot of support from the Farmers Union and a bunch of different individuals who have come behind me to understand my mission.
4: And Stella, you've been helping Sasha for a few years now. What has been most impressive to you about this journey that she's been on
6: i think it's so cool that she started as like an instagram post and now it's coming in like we're going to be able to harvest in like maybe like a month um sasha really inspired me because sasha's been working on it for eight years i've been working on it for about like six years because she's had to face like a lot of like challenges especially like finding someone that c- could ha- partnership with her to be able to purchase the container i know that was the one that stumped us for a really long time but yeah she really inspired me because like she didn't stop or like give up
4: how many people can one container feed the weekly harvest is about 150
5: pounds of produce so that's a pretty substantial amount of people and if we start looking at our communities and implementing these based on need we can be ahead of a problem. And by doing so, I think a lot of the spaces that these will live in will be potential shelter points if we do have a large hurricane or heavy weather system. And I think that that really will help with that next phase of getting more in place.
4: Can you talk about when you anticipate your container to arrive and I know you had a big ask to make.
5: So the container will have a home. It will eventually be living in an affordable housing development on the west side. That will be breaking ground shortly. But I have about a year, maybe a year and a half, where it can be temporarily housed. We've already worked out that we'll be working with Kaimana Beach Hotel to sell the produce to keep our container running in the intern before it moves into its permanent housing. But we do need a location. Ideally, I'd really like to get a space that's
4: closer to Kaimana Beach and hopefully
5: linked to solar.
4: So you do have a permanent home for it out on the west side, but that won't be ready for about a year and a half. So you're looking for Someone who has some space for the container to be placed temporarily for about a year and a half, preferably close to Kaimana Beach Hotel. Yep. What's the best way to get a hold of you?
5: Instagram would be probably the best bet. My name's Sasha Leitner, and it's Hawaii Greens Freight Farm. And if you just DM me, it's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me.
4: Sasha, Stella, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. Thank
0: you. That was Hawaii Green's Freight Farms' Sasha Leitner and her pal Stella Piccola talking to HBR's Russell Subiono. When Leitner came by the studio last year, she was awaiting the arrival of her first container and looking for a temporary home for it until its permanent home was ready. We checked in with her this week to get an update. She shared that she's still waiting for a delivery date for her container, but she was able to find a temporary home for the container at the YY Collective on University Avenue. She says she's happy because it's so close to the University of Hawaii and a collective workspace. The permanent home for her freight farm container is expected to be ready in about two years.
3: You support HPR. You support community reporting about community issues.
7: It's been more than eight years since a group of families from Haena, Kauai established the Haena Community-Based Subsistence Fishing Area. The community creates rules regulating catch limits, size limits, species limits, and more.
3: With your support, HPR brings you voices from our island communities.
2: It's a tool that makes sure that we can keep on practicing and fishing the way we did and not excluding folks but saying like hey if you like come fish in this area this is how we fish this is how we take this is how much we take
6: it's got to be community driven got
2: to be from the people of the place they know their place better than anybody support
3: local reporting on hpr donate at hawaiipublicradio.org
0: Many local bakeries are seeking ways to source local ingredients as a way to contribute to food sustainability in the islands. We've heard about the push to make ulu flour, breadfruit flour, more available for bakers and chefs. But now there's macadamia nut flour on the menu. Maria Short is the co-founder of Kipuka Mills and co-owner of Hilo Short and Sweet Bakery and Cafe. We talked to her this past summer about a new door that's open for her business.
3: Kipuka Mills has been around officially 2019. We participated in Mana Up, which I'm sure you know is the business accelerator, and they actually helped us get our first piece of equipment. We didn't know how far we could go with that piece of equipment, and then we got investors, and with them, we were able to purchase more equipment, and so now we actually press the nuts and make the oil and sell the oil, sell the butter, and sell the flour. So nothing from the nut goes to waste. We were supposed to launch in 2020, but then everybody knows what happened. We are choosing to look at it as this is a silver lining. We've got all our ducks in in the row. And now we're able to launch this product and approach national companies, you know, not just within this economy, which we would love to even get, you know, a foothold in, in Hawaii as well. But we want to be able to get this out. To everyone. When I first started, Mellie James from Mana Up had said to me, she said, you know, Maria, I think this could be your legacy. And I said, I hope so. <laughs> so, as a pastry chef, having something different and new to work with is just, it's phenomenal. And there's nothing like this. There's no like, that can deliver the macnut flavor like this. And so, it was just, I don't know if you read the story about what on the website how it came to be but I had a friend that was making the oil and he came to me with this leftover cake. At the time I didn't know what it was and he said to me, You know, you want this? And I said, What is it? And he said, It's what's left over from the pressing. I said, Well what is it? he I said, He says it's Macnuts. I said, Nothing else? He said, No. And I said, There's nothing I said, it's pure Macnuts. He said, like, Yeah And I said, Gimme that <laughs> I was like, you're just. what are you doing with it? He said, we're throwing it out or just putting it in the garden or composting, or feeding the pigs. I said, oh, my God, no. So that's how it started. And it's pure mac nuts. In fact, it's pure mac nuts without the oil. So it, it is much more shelf-stable, much more usable, because it's, that's part of what makes mac, nut, macadamia nuts more difficult to use is their high um, oil content. But since we defat it before we, you know, it becomes a flour, then it acts like almond flour or coconut flour. It's just so much more usable that way. So you looked at it and saw gold. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm Filipino, first generation Filipino, and we, you don't waste food. So it was just like, no, 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 no. Yeah, I, I, thought, I was just like, what? And so, my goodness, I think that was probably eight, nine years ago now.
0: I think the different uh, folks that we have featured on this show, you know, during the pandemic and what the pandemic did was it just showed everybody how important sustainability is and agriculture. It elevated, you know, the importance of buying local uh, and Mm -hmm. feeding ourselves and, 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 and growing You know what was it what's what's the 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 line that the new agriculture director is? grow what we eat and eat what we grow when I was looking at your website and I was looking at the products and my my mouth was salivating because those look like fabulous (laughs) recipes that we can all try and elevate eating I'm looking forward to it so share with our listeners what does it taste like
3: it is very potent it is very potent it tastes like roasted macadamia nuts Mm -hmm. Uh, the flour itself you don't need a lot using 100% macnut flour is almost too much. There are a few things on there that we use. I have a chocolate tea cake that I use and it's gluten-free and it uses 100% mac nut flour and it is phenomenal. I like it. I'm on this, I'm on this kind of modified keto, modified paleo kind of diet. I love it because it ups the protein content of whatever I'm doing. So I make, I make these things called chaffles with it at the shop. We have several items that we call gluten-friendly, which means they're made without any wheat flour, and they're made completely with macadamia nail flour. There's savory applications as well as sweet applications. We, Since we're a bakery, we do mostly sweet stuff, but we have been using it for... It, I've it We tried to make a bechamel with it. It worked fine. Um, we've done... Uh, people have done, you know, mac nut encrusted instead of using... Crushed up mac nuts, which don't always stick very well. They use the flour, and they said it was phenomenal. Somebody made a friend of mine made fried chicken with it, and he said it was the best fried chicken he'd ever had.
0: Well, you know, we have seen in in some of the restaurants, right, uh, mac nut crusted fish. You could just really use that flour in so many dishes. You know, and I'm thinking there's a big push right now to serve more local food in our schools. Yes, so it opens the doors yes. there.
3: So the oil is wonderful. The oil is extremely shelf-stable. It's actually pretty neutral in flavor. You don't, you don't really even taste mac nut until, like, very, very end, and it's slight. We use it all the time here for cooking. Like, I use that. It's, it has less of a flavor than even, like, olive oil, and we don't do anything to it. It's just pressed and then bottled. Right now, we don't, we don't have a bottling line, so we're not selling the oil in retail sizes at this point. But we are looking into getting more equipment. It's so hard here because you have to really, like, educate your consumers and your clientele and let them know that this is here and this is a good way to get to where you want to be, you know, where we all should be.
0: And you're doing also the uh, sweet potato flour?
3: So the sweet potato flour, we slice, dehydrate, and then mill. And so it's, it is a raw product. It needs to be cooked before it's, you know, you can't just throw it into something that. So like at uh, the shop, we make something called halaya, which is the Filipino ube jam. We just make it with sweet potato. We've also put it in our, in our sweet bread.
0: And you're looking to get the certification for that product as well?
3: Yes, yes. The, you know, the first one's always the hardest. So hopefully we'll get that quicker. But when we got the certification, I felt like I had just gotten my uh, approved for my my master's thesis. Just got approved. Okay. It was so hard. It was it was not it was not an easy thing to do.
0: Now that you have it, like you said, it can open up doors, new markets for you. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh gosh, I think they've got Hawaii on the hill. Where they showcase a lot of Hawaii products. I don't know if you're involved in that. You know, you've got pop-up Makeke where, you know, they're really trying to get Hawaii products in the in the limelight.
3: Yeah, right now we're in Oahu. Farm Link is the only one is the only place that that you can find our products in Oahu. on the Big Island. We pretty much have all of the you know island naturals and localvore stores and and Kohala grown all of the those the Stores that carry locally grown products. We have all of that on the Big Island. But on Oahu, we only have Farm Link. So we're hoping to, to be carried by more stores in Oahu. And
0: what's the most satisfying thing for you at the end of the day when you see now how far you've come?
3: Oh, there's so many. <laughs> the most satisfying, um, you know, at Short and Sweet, we use the flour. And we label them gluten-friendly, so it's not for someone that's severely celiac. But when someone comes into the shop that previously couldn't really eat anything from uh, short and sweet, then, and they say, oh, my God, you guys have so many gluten-free stuff that I can eat. And, I, you know, thank you so much because I, I understand. Like, if somebody told me I couldn't have dessert, you know, or anything with flour for the rest of my life, or at something, you know, it'll make you feel bad afterwards. I would be really sad, I would be really <laughs>
8: depressed.
3: So to me, it's just like, and I want that for everybody. I want people to have, you know, there, there's there's room for everything, and I feel like this will really open up, you know, markets, open it up for people to be able to say, okay, yeah, I can eat that.
0: I can eat that. That was Maria Short, co-founder of Kapuka Mills, which got federal certification for its macadamia nut flour milled on the Big Island this past summer. Short is also the pastry chef of Hilo's Short and Sweet Bakery and Cafe. We'll continue with our Food Sustainability Hanahou show right after this short break.
6: This week on Science Friday, culturing clusters of human brain cells in the lab.
8: Simply put, a brain organoid is a miniature replica of the human brain.
6: Plus the Little Book of Aliens, how to really search for clues for intelligent life in outer space. All on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at one.
5: Josh Groban gives his final performance as Sweeney Todd in the Broadway revival of Stephen Sondheim's acclaimed musical on Sunday after 46 weeks and rave reviews. On the next Fresh
7: Air, we feature our interview with Groban about taking on the role, his life and career. Join us. Fresh Air beginning this afternoon at 3 following Science Friday.
0: to the conversation and our food sustainability show, for many decreasing our dependence on imported food means increasing produce and plant-based edibles but what about local meat and protein in our final story today we hear about forage hawaii a business with the mission to bring locally sourced protein to home chefs jessica Rohr started the company Our former producer, uh, Stephanie Hahn, spoke with her this past April about why eating local matters and how meat became her mission.
8: Jessica Rohr is the founder of Forage Hawaii, a business dedicated to local meats and fish. She started it with a $5,000 Costco credit card, put in a lot of hard work and sweat And remain faithful to her mission to bring high-quality meat and protein to home chefs. I paid a visit to her Dillingham warehouse to learn about Roar's entrepreneurial journey and discovered her thoughts on vegetarianism, women's jobs, workouts, hunting and foraging, sustainability and food sovereignty bones and collagen, ingredients in lipstick, and the struggles and understanding that have built her business. How did you come to sell meat for a living? This is a bit unusual. Is it unusual because I'm a woman? Yes, I
7: think so. It's so funny because when I do things that are typical of like male jobs i don't think of it that way because for me i'm like i'm doing it because it's interesting it's fun and when i used to work on boats for really, when i have my captain's license and i drove boats and i got all the time people telling me like why do you do this and i'm like because it's fun <laughs> you know <laughs> and i even had somebody once this woman she said so they let you drive the boat <laughs> sometimes i'm a little offended by that why is it so weird you know I just don't think twice about it, honestly. I've always done um, whatever sounded like fun to me, and I'm a bit of a tomboy. And it doesn't cross my mind a lot. One thing is, though, I am very strong, you know? I think a lot of things I do, it takes a lot, you know? And I'm six foot, I'm an athlete, and I lift approximately 3,000 pounds multiple times a month of meat and of my product back and forth so that's about how much we sell but but i'm taking stuff in and out of my freezers and to farmers markets and away from farmers market aside from that i don't really see the difference although i know there's just not as many female business owners as male business owners but if it's my personality, I've always done boy jobs, you know. i was <laughs> boat captain or you know, on working on boats or doing hard jobs. I mean like Jenny, she works for me. I, you know, she does construction for a living as well. Yes. <laughs> so she's we look at it as our workout, like we joke that this is the forage gym, you know, we don't have to go to the gym <laughs> because we're lifting these fifty-pound boxes of meat all all the time.
8: Roar is an unassuming pioneer of women who enter typically male dominated industries. And wow, what is being made here? Oh,
7: Jenny's doing our chorizo sausage. Chorizo sausage traditionally has ground boiled pork skin in it. And of course, me being a whole animal person, I love that. When I found that out, I was so excited because one, it makes it super delicious. Two, it adds a ton of collagen. And three, it allows us to utilize the whole animal. Right. So what do you got right here? So this is an order from a customer that we've got up front. Um, We've got a couple of whole chickens, some lamb stew and a couple of ribeyes. My name is Zoe and I live on Oahu's North Shore and I really love their ground beef and their sausages. Um, she makes all her sausage by hand as I can literally see her doing it right now and it's delicious seriously it's absolutely amazing and you can taste the quality and the love that goes into everything that she makes yeah <laughs> and I drove like an hour and a half to get here and I love her stuff so much I will sit in all the traffic to get to your food <laughs> so what do you, when you throw a barbecue what happens? I basically my mom is my neighbor and we buy a bunch of like tri. and all sorts of New York roasts
8: and steaks and stuff and then just grill all night long and bring as many friends over as possible. Like many in the business, Jessica Rohr was influenced by a family that prioritized good food. Are you from a hunting and gathering family? Because this concept of hunting and gathering, I'm imagining kind of survivalist. How did you come to this way of thinking? I do have a background um, eating hunted
7: and wild food. My dad was a tugboat captain, and so he would bring home fresh fish or taco that they dove, they caught when they're diving and stuff. And so I had that experience as a young child. And then my mom, married a hunter. My stepdad was really into hunting and fishing and so every year if he could, we he'd get um, an elk. I, I grew up kind of here in Colorado. I had the experience of the Colorado hunting and then the Hawaii fishing. Everything that I sell has an environmental impact that's positive. Like the deer is one of the biggest ecological issues in the state of Hawaii. I mean, it doesn't just destroy the land, it creates all this runoff that smothers the reef and destroys the ecosystems in the ocean. What is this tallow balm and what is it made (laughs) out of? That is made out of beef tallow and a little bit of organic local beeswax. It's pretty
8: neutral. Um, Let me smell it. (laughs) There's not really a smell with it.
7: And all like women's beauty products used to be made with a lot of animal products until recently. Like lipstick always had beef tallow in it, yeah.
8: I Cause did it, not know cause that.
7: Because it's the best moisturizer for your skin. It's more similar to our skin's fat, um, which is more saturated.
8: I had no idea. I did not know that. I know. I just learned it too. Jessica Rohr's decision to enter the meat business was not easy and required a lot of deep reflection, experimentation, risk-taking, and study i've always studied nutritional anthropology i'm really fascinated by
7: um, nutrition in human history and so when you go back and you look at that it's like we've always been meat eaters Uh, this is the first time you know humans have ever tried to have generations born eating zero animal products and luckily we have all these supplements that can help with that and it's totally doable but we we have been in history omnivores I have a lot of friends who are concerned about the environment and they're vegans because of the environment or just because of whatever reason. And some of them thrive and some of them, you know, come see me after a while. I have a lot of people that, you know, when I started my business, the push against meat was really strong. I was up against a lot of hate. I did Earth Day, and I just sold invasive venison because when you're overpopulated then they start dying in in horrendous ways i still got so much hate i've had so much people like fight with me on instagram and this was like when i first started now people are starting to embrace the idea of regenerative agriculture and like you know meat can be a part of a a healthy system and it but i know in hawaii we don't have other sources of high quality protein that are local and if you're going to import something that's a plant-based and now it's you've got a whole nother carbon footprint and so for me you know, transitioning from vegetarian, I was like tackling all these things, trying to do it right for the animals, do right for the environment and do right for my health. And I learned just through trial and error that for my health, I feel better when I'm eating meat. That's just me genetically.
8: Jessica Rohr, owner of Forage Hawaii, is on a mission to help us eat better. She reminds us that delicious is linked to healthy and that smart protein choices taste good and can also be a lot of fun.
0: That was Jessica Rohr, owner of Forage Hawaii, talking about connecting home chefs with local protein. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that is it for this Aloha Friday. We'll be back with you live on Tuesday after the Martin Luther King holiday. Call our Talkback line and leave some comments. That's 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on our website or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. Our program is produced by Russell SubiONO, Lillian Song, and Savannah harriman Pope. The Backyard Quiz theme was written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music is courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us Monday through Friday to pick up the conversation.